Welcome to this MTech Access podcast. At MTech Access, we offer a complete global market access service from strategy through to implementation. In the UK, all our work is underpinned by authentic NHS insights. Our in-house experts work closely with a national network of associates who occupy strategic, operational and clinical roles within the NHS. Leaders in their field, their knowledge and experience helps MTech Access to be as close to the front line of care delivery as possible. To support our clients through the COVID-19 crisis and beyond, we launched this webinar series. Each week, we bring together two experts from the NHS to briefly present what is going on in their part of the health service. We have now converted this series into a podcast, so you can listen in as and when you like. Please subscribe to the podcast or follow our LinkedIn company page for more information. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of our, our weekly COVID webinar. We've uh, I lost I've lost track of how many of these we've done now, but we've looked at all sorts of different areas of, of the NHS uh, and the response to COVID. And throughout the course of the weeks, we've had people getting in touch with various questions. So uh, rather than replying to those individually, I thought it might be a good idea to look at some of the biggest themes that have come through with a bit of a multidisciplinary team we've got here today. Um, so we're gonna have a bit of a panel discussion around some of the, the biggest themes, some things that we probably haven't really addressed over the last few weeks, um, which promises to be very exciting and insightful and hopefully will add a huge amount of depth to the knowledge we've already helped, helped you to gain about the COVID response. We're very lucky today, we've got the Fantastic Four. Um, we, we're joined this week by Cameron Ward, Interim Director of Strategy and Outcomes at Sefton CCG, Hilary Snowden, who is the Management Lead for West Northumberland PCN, Patrick McGinley, Head of Costing and Service Line Reporting at Maidstone and Tunbridge Wells Trust, and Dr. Suma Cole, a GP and Area Clinical Director in Sussex Community Foundation Trust. I think I've got all of those right. Um, that's half an hour taken up. So um, the first area we're going to look at this week, um, we're going to look at the care delivery and, and how that's all changed and what might continue to change. And I think that the biggest question on a lot of people's lips is, is around how services are going to start to remobilise themselves, particularly with the threat of a second wave looming large uh, in the background. So. Um, who should come to you first? Cameron, as you're, as you're at the top, um, shall we come to you first on that? How, what are you going to, or what are you seeing locally about how services might get themselves up and running? Um, thank you, uh, Tom. So several things I would say to pick up with. Um, there's a, a backlog of uh, elective planned cases uh, to consider. So we need to think about those. There's uh, urgent and uh, routine uh, to consider. Um, some of the urgent cases have been able to be managed during the COVID uh pandemic, the first uh, first wave of this. Um, concerns about the elective routine weights, their, their uh, weightiness have increased significantly. We're also concerned about um, a great deal of unmet need, uh, particularly cancer. Some other patients are A&E attendances have reduced significantly, attendances GP reduced significantly, or they're slightly creeping back up again. Um, so I just think there's a, there's a huge unmet need. Outside of acute hospitals in the community and mental health, a lot of those services had been stood down in order to focus on uh, COVID uh, capacity. Um, and so they're coming back as well. So we're trying to pr clinically prioritize those as best we can. But I, I, a third concern would be how long it's going to take to try to meet the uh, unmet demand that we've had for the last uh, three months. So those are the areas that we're looking at at the moment. 
having to expand later, but those are just some initial concerns. Thank you. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. And, and Sue, building on that from your perspective, I suppose, what, what are you doing in that area around the remobilisation? So I work for a big community trust and we have both primary care and lots of community services, some consultant led and all the nursing and things. And we were told very early stages to stop anything that wasn't vital. We have recently been told to restore is the buzzword. So we are going through all the services that we paused. Some of them were paused because NHS England specifically told us they were to be stopped and some were stopped because you just can't do it remotely. We redeployed lots of staff into other services and we stopped using agency and so it's a massive operation now to go through all the paused services, put the staff back and then help them work out how they can safely see people. I think our busiest team is probably estates because all our waiting rooms were wrong, our clinical rooms were wrong. It's a massive endeavour. So I agree with Cameron, we have got a huge backlog. We've rejected a lot of GP referrals into our community services, so we know that they're going to come back. But more than that, of the ones we know about, we just don't have the setup to see them yet. So we're having to go through every single service and look at staffing, waiting rooms, access, PPE. It's a nightmare. Thank you. And, and Hilary, how does that reflect in primary care? Um, I think it's it's very similar in terms of it's not just a case of restarting because it's going to be very very reduced um, capacity to be able to deliver um, in terms of um, patient safety, staff safety. Um, how do you ensure that uh, rooms are safe while still being able to provide a service for people who are showing COVID symptoms. Um, so, you know, we're really needing to start to think about across the locality, not just at practice level, what can be done safely with it, what has to be done within individual practices, what could be done remotely, what could be done by somebody else, does it have to be done by that patient's GP? So, I think it's giving us an opportunity to, to really think innovatively about redesign but I do worry about a massive wave of, of unplanned um, care in terms of you know, all the screening services that haven't been able to be provided. How do we catch up on uh, long-term condition reviews safely? Um, it's a massive, a massive ask. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And, and Patrick, quickly on the on the hospital perspective on getting back to normal. How does that look from your end? I know we've been struggling a bit with your sound, Patrick. Can you hear me? You're back, uh, you're back now, Tom. Um, uh, I have been struggling a little bit. Um, I think I'd probably just echo um, uh, the points particularly Cameron made um, uh, about our worries, um, but also uh, Sue's point about uh, the instructions to uh, restore or restart. Um, uh, and the problem for us would be that what we want to restart would be in a completely different way, a different form than what we were told to stop. Um, so as, as Cameron said, uh, our urgent um, uh, surgery for, for cancer is undertaken in uh, Queen Victoria Hospital in um, uh, East Grinstead and in the local independent sector hospitals. 
it's not being done on site. Uh, Patrick, I think we I think we might have dipped out from your sound again. So um just gonna uh, just gonna pause Patrick there for a moment. And um I, I think what's come out of all of your responses there is kind of this this split, there's two elements really. What there's a, a bit about the practical element of um how it's going to be done but then also the piece about prioritizing and what patrick mentioned there you know the the question of uh, whether what's being restarted is different to what was stopped um so in terms of that piece about sort of the elective and the routine care in, in particular um how is that going to be looked at how might the prioritization go around there i'll come back to you sue on that if i can yeah, I mean, our local acute hospital, similar to the one, Patrick isn't too far from me, actually. I don't cover his area, but it's a similar idea. And us as a community trust have a wide range of services. And although NHS England wants us just to magically clear the waiting list and go back to normal, we can't do all the services in the new post-COVID world. So our acute trust is having to think carefully about who needs to be seen or have an operation and what's the safest way of doing that we've got a two-site hospital trust which is quite common across the country and I think they're going to do a red site green site so that they don't let anybody with symptoms onto the green site and Patrick's quite right cancer and some other surgeries are so high risk that you wouldn't dream of doing it on a site where they could get infected so I think there's going to be more and more acute trusts who go out to the private sector and buy a small amount of capacity to kind of put really high risk patients in a protective bubble. Community services, we're going through all our demand and thinking, well, who needs us most? So for example, we do all the local child health. So the Healthy Child Programme is vital for picking up the most at risk children. So we've prioritised getting the Healthy Child Programme back on. And we're also starting to push immunisation because flu season's coming and if we don't get everybody immunized against seasonal flu this is just going to compound so i think we're being told do everything but we're being allowed to plan according to what we think will actually give us enough breathing space to then bring more things online and we're bringing them online in sections so that we aren't overwhelmed because the nhs was supposedly going to be overwhelmed by covid as I said to you before, Tom, on other conversations, I think the NHS is looking at its worst overwhelming coming up because when we start trying to clear these backlogs, that's when we're going to go under because staff are tired and weary and, and then they're going to get this massive bow wave of unmet need. Yeah. Thank you. And in terms of that, that bit about prioritising, you're saying you're doing bits and chunks and you're being asked to do everything. Is that prioritisation by clinical need or is it by the way you're incentivized or, or, or reimbursed for certain activities or, or how is that managed? Some of it is to do with what we're being told to do. So for example, the listeners will have heard about the GPs having to do enhanced health in care homes and community trusts have to be key to that. So we've got an entire team sorting out getting our part of care home MDTs up and running. So sometimes it's prioritised by what we're being told to do. And then with everything else, it's being prioritised 
by the local team. So the area that I run, I'm a doctor, we have an area nurse and an area manager. The three of us sat down, looked at our services and just said, well, we think that should come back online first, then that, then that. Sometimes it's the longest waiting lists like physio. And sometimes it's because emotionally, that's what we think our community would want, like children. Yeah, okay, thank you. So, Hilary, I saw you uh, nodding and shaking your head at various points through, through a couple of those responses. In terms of primary care and how you'll be prioritising the return to, to well, or, or remobilising, how is that? How are those decisions being driven in primary care? Um, I think, I think um, as a, as a group of practices, I think there's things being done across the locality. In this, but at the same time, individual practices are deciding how to prioritise. Um, but certainly, I agree with Sue. I mean, childhood inns is, is going to be key because we're really concerned. Uh, you know that that if if people don't come in, actually, we're going to have a worse you know epidemic. Um, and seasonal flu is you're just thinking we need to. You know, normally in primary care, what you have is a Saturday morning where people are queuing around the block to have their flu jabs. That is just not going to be feasible going forward in a socially distant way. So it's going to take a lot more time, which is great if the weather's with you and you can do it outside. What if the weather's pants? And so it, we really need to think innovatively, but we're expecting demand to be high for, for flu backs. I think I mentioned long-term conditions, and I think it's it's also prioritising people with it within those. So, for example, in, with diabetes beforehand, you might say everybody with you know HBCA above 58 needs to be seen, but actually that might be so many. So we say right, those above 64, 70, we prioritise those. I think there's going to have to be some stratification um, in terms of patients. Um, which, which is from a, a sort of operational point of view is going to be quite challenging with practices because normally those reviews are by the month of uh, the, the month that person is born in um, and we're going to have to do that differently now. Um, so I think what we try to do is across the whole PCM try to get some agreed principles on how that's done across all the practices because um, what we don't want to drive through is inequity um, further than it might already be. Thank you, and Tom, I just wanted to add that I think there is a, there's both opportunity and risk now. There's opportunity that we'll all innovate and redesign things that didn't work, but there is risk that we'll all start pushing work at each other. Because if you've got acute trust, community trust, GPs and the CCGs overriding but being held account for something they don't really control, there is a risk that we will all go back into our silo camps. And what made me think of it was flu vaccs. Our um, community district nurses give out thousands of flu vaccs, but we're getting, we only do it for housebound patients. And we've had this massive rush of lists of patients that are now apparently housebound that are now become our responsibility, whereas in the past the GPs did it. So there is a risk that we're all going to go into our camps and throw this extra work at each other and break down the relationships that were just starting to blossom. Thank and NHS England's going to make that worse by holding the wrong people for account for the wrong outcomes, which is what they tend to do a lot. So Cameron, coming to you as, as the commissioner, how are you going to uh, 
coordinate everyone and make sure they're pulling in the same direction to 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 get all the the your priorities i suppose at a population level okay they're going to do exactly as we say <laughs> and if they don't agree we'll have a nice little chat and then after that then they'll agree that we were right in the first place just in all seriousness all right i know i'm being flippant um, I think that I think it's important because actually both Hillary and, and Sue have, have, have talked about actually what there's a significant tension here I think uh, in the system system across the country there's a command and control system in place uh, with hospital cells out of hospital cells being set up uh, we've been talking locally that actually it needs to be a system approach it can't be separate in that way so that's unhelpful uh, because across the area that I'm in that's Cheshire and Merseyside that's a population of about 2.8 million and they're talking about common waiting lists common approaches and really that's just far too great a size so we've got uh, attention there because the trusts and the community providers are going to those two cells as it were talking about things and the ccg then are in the middle in order to try to make that work the concern as well is that the constitutional requirements around 18 weeks 52 week waits will get a lot of attention when really it's all the other things that Sue and Hillary have, have talked about. Uh, mental health uh, and all different aspects of mental health as well, CAMs, uh, immunizations have been mentioned, all of those things actually I think should give a greater attention, which is going back ironically to the NHS long-term plan and that's about addressing health inequalities. So I've just got a concern that all of those local issues where we're getting local authorities involved will just come across this it's going to be a command and control system. The other thing to note is I know we're not going to be talking about dentistry today, but there was talking about dentists on the radio this morning. And I couldn't believe, first of all, that they aren't identified as frontline staff. Um, uh, they've been closed for uh, several months. Um, uh, they don't have PPE. Um, and, pe you know, patients are, you know, doing, you know, their own dentistry at home. And, I, and that's like dark ages things. And we're talking to people that are, so I just think some of the priorities we haven't got in the right place. And I know that there's going to be some uh, uh, national discussions later on this year, August, September time, about resetting those priorities. But I think really we can reset them now. And that's exactly the things that Hillary and Sue have, have talked about. That's where we need to be focusing our energies, I would think, particularly to address the health and equality aspects. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Patrick, have we got you on audio? Yes. We have fantastic. Could could I just come to you to ask uh, at a trust level in terms of the the prioritisation of of uh, services and, and remobilising them? What are the considerations for you in in how you address that? What comes back first and what ways? Um, I think there's uh, there's I think as Cameron said, there's a there's a real set of tension uh, coming in, and it echoes uh, many of the points that Sue and Hillary made as well. Um, you know, from an operational point of view, we're looking at um, elective and planned work and kind of saying there's four buckets. There's the must do and can do. So we can do the oncological surgery off-site somewhere else. So we do that. Then there's a sort of should do and can do. And we're thinking about how we do that. And that's where, you know, some of those difficult words for an accountant come in, in terms of the ethical judgment there. You know, do we make the emotional thing? Is cancer always more important than varicose veins to throw one? Um, 
There's a third bucket of uh, can do, uh, should do, but can't. We don't have the capacity, we don't have a method, we don't have a, a formula. And there's that horrible fourth bucket that we can't and maybe we shouldn't. Mm. And we don't know what's going in those, so there's an operational issue there. But I think there's increasingly, there's a value tension. If I have a, a resource in theatres that is really, really precious now, because trying to get a surgeon and an anaesthetist in the same place when there's lots of other pressures to pull them away is even more difficult. But if I'm going to spend half an hour between cases, uh, I kind of want to spend as few half hours cleaning up as possible. So do I look at cataract surgery and go nine minutes operating for 40 minutes cleaning? Hmm, do you know what? Um, and uh, Moorfields have almost stolen a march on that locally that they were given notice to withdraw services from North Kent. And just as I announced yesterday that this was absolutely the area we should be avoiding, uh, we had the uh, director of operations saying, no, no, we've agreed that we'll pick that up for North Kent. Well, marvellous. Um, but there is, a, you know, if I'm going to have difficulty getting people in the same place, do I really want them standing around for more than half the time not doing what we want to be done? And so so it, it's, your, it's your feeling then that the elective the elective work is going to take quite a long time to gain momentum yes. because there'll be, a, a, I suppose, a, almost an inertia around yeah. value judgments and, and everything that goes on. I, I, I do. And, you know, in my quiet moments of despair, which, you know, for an accountant come every day, um, there is an existential risk to the DGH model. You know, it's fine saying I can have a red and green, but my anaesthetist will be on the red site in the morning and a surgeon will be looking for him to be on the green site in the afternoon mm. and i'm like quite sure that i can't protect the green you know so i actually think you know we stop having that two a and e's two surgical sites and that's maybe not a bad thing but that's a command and control issue that says Maidstone, you're green, you have no A&E anymore. So it's a bit of a shame that we've just appointed you to be the Hazu. Yeah. Okay. Thank, thanks, Patrick. Cameron, were you looking to come Sorry, in? Sorry, just, just a, a small PS to that. Actually, interesting, we're finding that because of the 14-day self-isolation that prospective patients need to do before they go in for their elective surgery, quite a number are now saying, well, no, actually, they can't afford that because actually they're back to work after being furloughed. Yeah. And also they've got a concern actually that even being side-by-side, they don't want to go into hospital in case they get COVID. Absolutely. So that just brings yeah. in another dimension to how yeah. it may actually might downplay some of the elective work. So I didn't want to take it more time, but it was just thought it was quite relative. Thank you. Thank you for, for clarifying that, Cameron. I think I think we've got a good picture there of kind of what, what might lie ahead. Um, another one of the questions that I think follows on nicely from that, one of the questions that's been sent in was, uh, what lasting relaxation effects on NHS government uh, do you anticipate remaining post-pandemic? And I suppose that's a reference to the green light that's been given to expenditure and doing things, a lot of freedom given locally to addressing the pandemic. Uh, I can see lots of smiles up for this one. So, um, yeah, what's what's the perception on how that might last? I'll, I'll come to you first, Hilary, if I can do from a primary care perspective. Um, I think it's going to come back and twice as hard. Yes. 
um, to an extent. Um, I think you know, we've been allowed to, to really do things differently and the governance is now trying to catch up with that. Um, certainly there's been a few safeguarding issues I'm aware of in terms of consultations and you know, sending images across. Um, mm. And, I, and I, I just worry that it's sort of like we've been let out of our boxes to innovate, to innovate and NHS England and CQC will want us firmly back in our boxes. Yes. Um, and, and it's sort of how do we ensure that that doesn't happen, but within a safe governance, you know, and that's, mm. a, that's a safe governance perspective, not for, just for patients, but also for, for staff as well. Um, but I do have concerns it's just going to come back twice as is hard yeah are, are there particular things that you think might be focused on you've mentioned obviously their sort of safeguarding and some of the those sorts of issues i think information governance um but certainly at the start of covid the information commissioner had said that she didn't envisage any instances where people would be prosecuted if they were sharing information for the right reasons that's not going to suffice no. going forward um, and I think there's a real concern about are there going to be complaints about things you did at the time and it's how will that be judged um, and I think that's going to be a moving thing and so I have a real concern that people were doing things at that time for the right reasons in that, that particular day and time but somebody's going to judge that as being not the right thing at the right time later on. Yeah, thank you. So Sue, same question to you. What's your view on the governance situation? I think clinically we've been given a lot of leeway. Doctors are being, well, all clinicians are being allowed to work outside their area of specialty. And we were all given special indemnity to cover any mistakes we made because we were dabbling in something. We didn't really know what we were doing. There is a lot of anxiety that people were pushed to make decisions they don't normally make and as Hillary quite rightly says is there now going to be a going back over what we did and looking for flaws. I think we've also been given the green light to be very innovative and do things in different ways so we're using various software and we're ringing patients we're doing all this stuff but it's a little bit dodgy I mean for example my son's teachers aren't allowed to have a one-on-one -on -one video conversation with him because of safeguarding but a GP can ring a patient who might be mentally ill, vulnerable, whatever, without capacity and have a one on one with them. So I think it can't stay as relaxed as it is. The government needs to get control of money, needs to get control of what we do, what mistakes we do or don't make. They also let us bring loads of retired staff back with tax relief and they can still claim their pensions and all those staff are going to re-retire. They've put lots of clinicians working from home because they're shielding. What are they going to do about that? So I agree with Hillary. I think they're going to pick over everything. They're going to look for ways to not pay what they promised to pay. And they're going to look for ways of pulling the lead a bit tighter again. Yeah. OK, thank you. And, and Cameron, I suppose you've already mentioned command and control. And uh, I know from previous conversations, you've got a view on that. Where, what's your perspective on the, the governance overall? Um, I suppose my concern would be that it hasn't got to go back to what it was like before. Uh, and within the command and control environment, which uh, Sue and Hillary have indicated, is they've, they've given us some freedoms, but it, the danger is it'll go back to what it was like. 
because they want that control and that's what happens in a command and control system and I, however i do think it's it's negative uh, it can only be in place for a short period of time and then you need to have that local arrangements in place so we should be able to locally determine if things have worked let's just continue to make them work and not have to go back um, so that would be uh, a concern because really a lot of decision making has been quick uh, which is good uh, speed of implementation fast which is good so we need to make sure that we we continue to do that the finance bit that you were mentioning as well and others have too uh, before patrick comes in uh, from an accountant point of view uh, there's a bill here and it's going to be significant and we can't ignore the fact that it's going to be very costly so the emphasis around the money's not an object that was it's very short-lived um and we have to we have to get back and it's the, it's the right thing to do is to get back to thinking about how we can do these things because Opportunities have already mentioned, both for Hillary and Sue and Patrick. Actually, there are some opportunities, and we need to make sure that we can uh, use them. So some of the remote working, um, the Attend Anywhere software, that's all good. Uh, and we need to make sure that we can capitalize on that, because actually that will give us some savings. Um, so that's what we need to try to do as well. I just really want us to guard against going back to what it was like. Yeah, thank you. And, and you've recognised why I was leaving Patrick to last there. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Patrick, can you can you sort of segue the governance piece into finance and, and give us a perspective on um, sort of how you expect the the finance arrangements and, and the governance that sits around that to play out? Uh, well, I think it does segue from uh, the points Cameron's just made um, uh, that uh, the impact of the command and control. Um, has already started in the acute finance position. Uh, 18th of May, uh, we had a letter telling us what would and wouldn't be funded as reasonable under the COVID. That blank checkbook has been withdrawn. If it's not on the reasonable list, you're not getting it, even if you've already paid for it. Um, equally, um, the PPE, it, only the centrally sourced PPE will be funded. If you've set up your own arrangements in addition to that, they're not funded, they're at risk for you, they're out of your block contract. So for us, that's um, uh, £900,000 in uh, May and the same in June, um, that's not funded. Um, my concern uh, on the governance issue is that um, given the leash is being shortened on finances we uh, you know sometime in august there'll be a further announcement and it will be much less um uh, money coming in through the block contracts i suspect but that the command and control approach from nhse they may find it very attractive and like catnip it may be a little bit difficult to let go of in September, October, because I think we start then running into all of those earlier issues about flu immunization, seasonal change. And at that point, there's a decision made by NHSE that that's the wrong time to let go on the governance. Um, absolutely right about keeping the things that work and making sure we don't go back to the position we were in, because that wasn't really working either. Um, I had an interesting conversation with a colleague in Germany last night, and they found that they're already back at 80% face-to-face consultations. Wow. And that's one of those ones that we're going, we must keep remote access. We must have, uh, you know, a continuation of that. That's such a good thing to come out of it. And they're saying, no, 
is, is that within a hospital setting that trick yeah 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 uh you know patients wanted to see face to face and that was the driver now it may be that as an you know largely insurance-based system if you want to see your doctor you've got a little bit more than us going nope you're not seeing any of our gps directly um that may be different but that that was that was really bad news to get last night yeah absolutely yeah um you, you mentioned, or, or you've, well, you've already touched on it. This, uh, you, know, that you were given license to do things differently. Now it's all coming back. Do you perceive, yeah. uh, I suppose, a, a detriment to trust? Because early, early in the COVID crisis, everyone was talking about trust was building and partnership working was better and collaboration and everything. Does anyone perceive a, a deficit in trust as a result of this tightening of governance? Anyone want to jump in? I think there's a detriment of trust between um, us and NHS England. Yeah. I think not between us and our colleagues in community and acute. Yeah. Thank you. Everyone looks like they. Yeah. No. I, I would. I would agree. I think the the local collaboration has worked very well. Um, local authorities, community, trust, mental health providers, along with acute uh, primary care, and um, so that local collaboration, I think, has been very good. Uh, and I would concur with Hillary about the NHSE, but I can't link it again to the command and control. Yeah, okay, thank you. So, I mean, you mentioned there the, the collaborative working locally uh, and everything we've heard over this sort of series of webinars so far has been very positive in terms of how that's all working. With a bit of a nod to some of the things that we've heard, particularly from Patrick there as well, about reversion to type. Do, do the panel um, see that this is a, a big step forward in kind of the integration and that there's there's lasting change there in, in how the partnership workings uh, all gone? Sue? I think at the moment we're in a, a good place, but I'm not sure it will stick. So district nurses at the moment can go into a GP surgery and enter things onto the records using their computers there isn't really the information governance signatures and the right pieces of paper for that to happen. I'm not sure that will stick. And I think when we're all tussling to try and clear our waiting list before we get penalised, I think we'll start pushing work at each other and that puts tension on these relationships. So I think the other thing is that the public have been very NHS friendly initially, not quite so much clapping now, but when they realise they have to wait a year to see someone about their gallbladder pain, I think all that goodwill is going to fall away. And then the NHS staff will be under horrible pressure from patients. And that's when the bad behaviour comes out. Hmm. So, Cameron, just I suppose question for you there, right? you know, having a having the commissioner perspective on, I suppose, at, at that point that it becomes difficult, there's a choice of do you look look after yourselves as a part of the system to primary care hospitals or do you look externally to collaborate how do you support the move towards collaboration rather than reversion uh, so first of all I, I think it's important that we we do give every evidence and message uh, and signal around a collaborative approach that's what we need to look at um, and it's regularly questioning that within the system so it's 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 really trying to build on that I think there's a lot of uh, goodwill and we just need to try to keep hold of that. So it doesn't have to be that the CCG, we're in a situation whereby anybody in the system can take a lead for things. We just need to continue to make sure that we work together 
and it's a, a regular emphasis about that. So if the likes of the CCG are regularly collaborating, sharing documents, being open and transparent with all parties, then that continues to build that trust and, and ability to work together. And the, the final bit for me would be to say, well, if we've all agreed that that's what we're going to do, we need to be able to call out when people aren't operating in that way as a reminder and a check. Uh, and if that's for the CCG, that's fine, but then anybody in the system can do the same thing. So that's how I would be trying to encourage it. Yeah, thank you. Um, Hilary, that, that piece around collaboration and, and partnership working has a particular connotation in primary care, obviously with primary care networks still fairly embryonic or, or certainly not mature in, in most parts of the country. Do you think there's a, a lasting impact of COVID on the, the progression of PCNs and obviously there's still question marks around the, I suppose, the, the, the um, long-term sustainability of them and, and question marks over some people signing the dares? I think um, to some extent COVID has been the making of, of PCNs um, and I mean, none of the COVID response was part of the PCN agenda. You know, there's been no additional monies at PCN level for any of this, but we were tasked with having a locality-wide um, response to, the, to, to COVID and how to provide sort of hot hubs for for patients with um, COVID-like symptoms, how to do that safely to enable practices to continue you know, to, to function for their own patient population. Um, I mean, it came very strongly for us when um, a partner from one of the practices had said to our clinical director, um, I hadn't realised actually until now how much I feel as if the PCN is, is a bigger family for me and they felt really supported and that's really important particularly in our area where there's massive rurality and it's you know and if especially if people are working remotely that just reinforces that isolation so it's been really important uh, and I think up here we haven't there, there hasn't been the rumbles that there have been in other parts of the country in terms of don't sign the the, the days because to be honest, I think it's really difficult to argue against why would you not want to support and provide good care to those people in care homes? Why would you not want to ensure that people have you know, had structured medication reviews? Why would you not want to make sure that cancer is being diagnosed? Yeah, you can't argue against that if, you know, if that's what you're supposed to do. I think if you're saying, oh, we don't agree with that, I really think, well, why on earth are you in primary care? um to some extent because that's what we're about um so i think it's really the COVID really galvanized that we're working and they're being able to show that actually it's 12 12 or 14 practices we don't have to travel together to make decisions we can do it remotely and make decisions a lot quicker and we have that trust in each other to do things yeah, thank you. And, and Sue, I can see you're nodding away, obviously, as a GP in a community setting now. Uh, what's your take on sort of the collaboration with primary care and I suppose the, the future of primary care networks or, or the impact of primary care networks? I think change has always needed a burning platform and COVID was a good burning platform to get a lot of us moving. For us, the Enhanced Health in Care Homes, DES, is yet another burning platform so 
is a community trust, we are now talking to all the PCNs about what do you individually need? And the fact that we're asking them what they need and giving them what they need builds that relationship. So people talk about building relationships you can't do it theoretically it's not about going out to dinner you've got to have a project that you work through deliver build a bit of trust so I think Covid was one didn't necessarily get cross boundaries going got the PCNs going I think the next one is going to be all the PCN DESIs which comes with a healthy dose of it's not fair which brings people together in the NHS beautifully if you get a room of clinicians all moaning about the same thing that'll galvanize them <laughs> so I think we've got an opportunity and I think it's also a good opportunity for industry to get involved in the NHS and change their perception within the NHS because we're being given something unreasonable to achieve and we're yeah. all very affronted about that and if somebody swoops in and offers to help us then we're going to remember that so yeah. it's an opportunity. I, 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 thank you I, I think we might come back to that point in a, in a minute or two before we do I think uh, Patrick, you've already referenced sort of a couple of times your work with the private sector and, and possibly them having to play a greater role going forward. Can you just uh, talk for a minute or two on how you've been working with the private sector and the role that you'd see them them playing and how kind of the interactions work? Yeah, uh, and this is quite an interesting time uh, as we look at the sort of restore restart um, uh, from an operational uh, point of view uh, the beginning of the um, uh, crisis was uh, perfectly handled through command and control we got a block contract for not doing work and the independent sector contracted directly with NHS England and they got a block contract for doing a little bit of work uh, and this is part of the bill that um, uh, we've all mentioned before that will have to be paid back. Um, what has become clear as we've um, uh, reported the first couple of months financial position and um, uh, shockingly it will come as no surprise that with very few patients, reduced levels of ED, no planned elective work in Maidstone and Tunbridge Wells, we still managed to make a loss in the first two months. Um, uh, so proving that patients aren't the uh, in the problem in any financial system, it's it's us. Um, but we've looked at the amount of work that we lost in month one. That's all the figures we've got at the moment. And if we'd done it on a PBR basis, we would have been twenty million pounds short in month one. So two hundred and forty million pounds in a year, when our budget is five hundred and fifteen million pounds. So that's a scale of the amount of work that we've lost. Now, when we look at the independent sector activity levels, they've got nowhere near that level of work going through the independent sector. So a number of things come up. One, we've been triple paying for the work we've done. That's entirely possible. Two, the independent sector haven't done what they said they would do in terms of making the returns on the level of activity that they would. That's also not without out with the bounds of possibility. Well, three, they have done it, and we've still got an enormous gap between us. And at that point, what do we then do to put that right? And we've started as part of the restore of saying, right, well, we'll carry on doing uh, the oncological surgery at Queen Vic. That's that's fine. That's part of the NHS family. That's that's fine. As we then start to go, right, well, we want to stop doing orthopaedic work at Kim's 
that's fine. Except Kim's have got a direct contractual relationship with NHS England, not with us. NHS England have contracted that work, not us. So we can say we want to bring it back and they can say, fab, we don't care. We don't actually know who owns that consultant time that's being done there. I know I'm paying for it. Pretty sure Kim's are as well, but that's just garrulous speculation. But how we control that process is really very difficult, especially if the command and control continues. You know, can I hand and heart say it's safe to do orthopedic surgery at Maidstone? No, no, it's not. What am I going to do about it? Is it safer to do it at Kim's? Almost certainly, very probably. That difficulty in the relationship is we don't have that. You know, up until the 16th of March, we were the prime provider. If an orthopedic case needed to be done at Kim's or Benenden or Spire, it came through us and we agreed the case. Now it's directly through NHS England. They have done uh, a deal. We send X cases a week. We choose those cases, but we don't choose who does them. We don't choose how they're done, nothing else. And we've lost that control of that relationship. And it would be and, and, really, and really interesting. And, and you're not actually engaging per se with those local providers then to say, we need a bit of a, a, bit of a hand with this, this bit or that bit. It's, uh, no, it's, because they're working directly for NHS England. You know, send us send us your arthroscopies. You know, we don't want to do anything more expensive than that. Um, yeah, but okay. we're not controlling that anymore. That was just taken away, and it's part of that command and control change. You know, and until it's handed back fully to us, we've got nothing to lever a, a relationship with the independent sector. Yeah, thank you. So, Cameron, just coming to you on on that same point, I suppose. You know, with the with the commissioner hat on. Um, when you're looking at the services or lack of services that are being provided uh, across CCG at the moment, do you have a role to play in determining who will be doing those and where they might go? Uh, we will be, other than the independent sector that uh, Patrick was referring to, because that's a national contract, used to be done to CS CCGs, uh, but that's done nationally up until I think it's about the 24th, 25th of June. At the moment, I would ex expect that to be extended to pick up the elective a workload but the rest uh, yes that's very much up to the CCGs the problem we have is that we've got just like the acute sector similar block contract uh, funds so it becomes difficult to then spend beyond some of the commitments we've already made um, so that's that's what we're just trying to work that through uh, at the moment but I'd very much like to encourage particularly the voluntary sector huge uh, opportunities there for them to do uh, some activities and support us as well and then that links you into the industry as well to think how can they assist with this uh, too. Yeah, and I, I might ask you to just carry on on that that front. One of the questions that we we have been asked was, um, you know, around experience of working with with industry throughout this, in you know, not not so much the independent sector but broader than that, and and where you might see opportunities for support that that you're unable to manage at the moment. Uh, well, it's been quite limited uh, from a personal uh, perspective, but where I think they can add value, we've talked about finances already, is where they can think about the community-based services. So it's not going into hospital, it's an opportunity to uh, just innovate, continue the transformation work that we have been doing. 
in terms of focus on that um, at, a, at a reduced cost. Uh, and I think that's where the greatest uh, opportunities, I think, will be. If there's an opportunity for patients to be seen, treated in the community without having to go into hospital, I think that's going to be good. I know Patrick might be concerned about that in terms of lost income, but I'm trying to think about the overall demands that we have. Uh, and, and I think Sue already mentioned about, you know, uh, further waves will get inundated. Um, so I think that's where they could uh, give the greatest assistance. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, as, as you mentioned, the communities, so I suppose coming back to you on that, that bit around seeking support and getting more patients into community settings, do you see a place for support around pathway redesign and sort of that general area? Yeah, I think there's a risk that the easy stuff will be cherry picked off. And that's always been what NHS England have done. They take the easy stuff and give it to the private sector, leaving us all the complex stuff. But I think going forward, we're going to have to work smarter and help from the industry to work out which parts on this pathway could be changed to get better results. Is it using different kinds of staff? Is it better empowering patients? Is it patient education? Is it group consultations? Is it you know, webinars of giving advice. I think there's a lot that can be done and there's a lot of technology out there and NHS always lags behind that. So there's all sorts of things you can do with apps that we don't do at the moment. So I think there's a lot that can be done. And for each kind of system of the body, diabetes, respiratory, musculoskeletal, there's a different host of things that could be improved. And I think both communities and GP, community practice community trusts and GPs are going to need a hell of a lot of help. So now is the time to step forward and say, what do you need? And ask us what our fears are and then facilitate us thinking through a potential solution and just be with us on it. You don't have to have the solutions, but just be willing to help us think it through, plan it, work out how we're going to do it. How do we troll through patient notes and find the right people? How do we call them in? How do we track who's come in and who hasn't? I think the NHS needs more help than perhaps the industry realises. Perhaps there's an assumption that we can do things that we can't do. Thank you. Hilary, have you got anything to add to, to Sue's comments there? I, I just wanted to reiterate that actually, particularly in, I think there is an opportunity of pathway redesign because the way cares can be delivered is being thrown on its head, you know, and what we considered had to be done in the way, in a certain way, is being changed. Those thoughts, it's being changed completely. And I think you know the role of things like diagnostics you know you know how do you provide care safely in a patient's home what tests can they do um etc and um you know i think there's a real opportunity use of technology and and, and she's right you know, we, we don't have that and and enabling us to see that there are opportunities and i think i see certainly gp practices are much more open to different ways of working now um and what we try to certainly thinking about a clinical support unit for our for our um, practices um, led by pharmacy technicians that was raised in February. It was poo pooed because oh no, pharmacy technicians have to be within our practice, not remotely, not centrally. Went through it last week's board meeting because everybody realizes actually the last thing we want is more people in the practice, but having a remote centralized unit. It'll be perfect. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, and Patrick, to you on that as well, where where would you value support or would you value support and where from external industry partners? Now, I, I just echo everything that's been sped, uh, said uh, and it actually especially the point Cameron made um, that the challenge for acute hospitals now is I think we almost have to prove is it worth coming to see us? Is it worth being in an acute setting and if it's not we should be doing it somewhere else and we shouldn't be saying oh the best healthcare is is secondary acute care oh i mean it always will be of course uh, but you know we actually should be turning that on its head and going steady, steady. what is the need to be in hospital rather than oh i've got a serious illness because i'm off to the marsden actually why you know could we remotely monitor blood counts from home for chemotherapy rather than you know oh how do we get this result every two weeks every three weeks every six weeks or whatever that's where we need the help um, as Sue said or paraphrasing a part of what Sue said you know we need a lot of help uh, that perhaps industry don't recognize but particularly we need it in monitoring and recording you know we may be very good at setting up virtual clinics and whatever. We're rubbish at re actually recording who came, who saw, who for who, how long. Yeah. You know, we can yeah. do the first bit of the app, but not the bit that says, uh, "How do we prove it? Who saw who?" I mean, as an example of that, we we run rheumatology in the community, and we've got lots of patients on toxic drugs, so they have to have blood tests every two weeks, which they haven't had for ages. And then those blood test results, the bloods get sent to the acute hospital who analyse them. And then we have a secretary print them off one by one and put them on doctor's desk to leaf through one by one. And you're relying on that doctor being alert and noticing that that number is higher or lower than it should be. There's no flag system. So in a GP surgery, it's all done electronically and it kind of comes up a different colour depending on which system you're in to say that it's an abnormal result. So even something as simple as we have to do Lord knows how many thousands of blood tests a day and we are manually printing them and looking at them. Can you imagine the efficiency if somebody just generated some kind of algorithm that only printed off abnormal ones? Mm. And I, I suppose not to your and Patrick comments there, one of the other questions that we've had sent in was how will innovations that have happened during COVID be evaluated so the best ones are kept? So I suppose that's kind of picking up on the same bit. How, how do we know that this change has been positive? Hilary, I can see you're smiling there. I'm smiling because I think NHSC's definition of evaluation is probably very different from mine. Um, and I would say mine's more robust um, definition. So. Um, yeah, that's why that's why I'm smiling. Not that I necessarily have the answer. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you, Cameron. How do we keep? How do we know what the good things are? Um, I suppose the bit here is that if if we we could we could do research for a, lo a long period of time. Uh, I'm not downplaying research, and it's important that we continue to do that. But if at this stage we think that something's working, and the cons general consensus it is it is, and there hasn't been any serious risk or or, or clinical uh, concerns, then we should just continue. All right, and then move on to the next thing, uh, rather than getting because we're just going to get bogged down in the whole bureaucracy of the 
is, is it working or not, is, and, and whatever, and I just think that's going to be counterproductive. We just need to uh, keep that momentum going. If it's working, great, let's move on to the next thing. Yeah, thank you. So, Patrick, any, any more comments on that? And I think within, I mean, within my community trust, we've got an industry called QIA, Quality Improvement Analysis, and reams and reams and reams of forms have to be filled in for every change, every penny you spend. And we've stopped doing that because we can't keep up with the number of changes we're making, but we're going to have to go back and do it. So I think, how do we make the good stuff stick? Ideally, it's the PDSA, isn't it? Plan, do, study, act. NHS doesn't ever do the study. We don't review because we're too busy fighting the next fire. So I think the most important thing is for us just to pause and look at what changes were made, double check that they're safe and then you know continue. So actually to review them. But I would lay my income on the fact that the vast majority of trusts never review what they've done because they'll be too busy jumping through the hoops that are thrown at us. Does that resonate, Patrick? Uh, absolutely. And I, I can't believe that both Sue and Cameron are being so heartless towards our CQC partners. What on earth will they do if they're not going to be reviewing what we did and looking through the QIAs to justify why we made the change? Um, I mean, I think that's one of those really exciting opportunities that we can build on what's changed in COVID that actually we kind of got used a little bit to this is a good idea. Let's put the show on here, kids. Um, and you know what? All those people with good ideas, they had good ideas. And how do we keep that without somebody going, right, can I see your spreadsheet, please, that relates to the QIA for why you only did, you know, and, and that's the bit we've got to lose. Um, you you do sadly, a wonderful impression of yourself, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, the <laughs> the trick we found internally in Sussex is we just call it a pilot. If you call it a pilot, you can do pretty much what you like. You just have to have some key performance indicators that you're tracking in case somebody comes after you for it. So what we've done locally is we've branded all the changes pilots, which should trigger a review. And it kind so of implies they're temporary. And we, we touch on the governance piece. So when a pilot goes wrong under this permissive uh, environment in which we're in, how how can that be managed? How is that managed? You just go back to the way you used to do it. It's completely forgiven. If it was a pilot, if every pilot succeeds, you're not taking enough risks. So if you call it a pilot, it's temporary. You're just trying it out. It's nothing too radical. You get away with anything. We've piloted leg ulcer clinics, catheter clinics, dressing pathways all sorts of different things and if it goes well you just don't ever stop the pilot and if it goes badly you stop it and there's no repercussions. Cameron you're nodding away there do you agree with that? Uh, absolutely uh, we, we, we do need to take more risks but they've got to be proportionate of course um, I agree very much about the Sue if, you, if, if, if things are working exceptionally well then you're not pushing the boundaries enough and I just think we need to create that environment where people are uh, in the knowledge that that's, it's going to be safe for them and there isn't going to be the repercussions, as Sue says. And uh, we just need to continue to create that environment because that's the innovative environment we've had for the last few months. And that's the bit we need to maintain as well. Thank you. Thank you. Hilary, do you think primary care has the, the appetite and the capability to to work in that kind of a style? I think it, I think it does. Um, I, I think 
what I'll be very wary of is if it gets done in a way that where the CCG commissions something, and certainly I've been in a position where we've piloted something, it hasn't worked, obviously, and we've said to the CCG, look, this is a waste of resources, it's not working. They've said, no, it was a pilot for, a, we commissioned it for initial six months, it's got to do, you've got to do it for this, the six month period. And I think it's those sort of things, it's, it's about, nurturing innovation in a safe constructive enabling way because it allows us to to review change if necessary without having to go through a thousand steps and a thousand bits of form filling brilliant thank you patrick can i come to you for a final word on managing risk um yeah i i'm i'm in favor of of letting people like sue lead you know i i shouldn't be involved in what's good clinical risk or whether it's worth five pounds 66 every third thursday that's that's what's stifled in innovation and risk taking you know we should be saying you're the clinician what's good for your patient yeah absolutely um invisible ink uh, signed last Thursday. it's in the post sue it's in the post <laughs> I, I think we've, we've just hit three o'clock, so I'm going to take this opportunity to thank you all hugely for, for your contributions today. And I hope, Sue, that you're not in charge of the RAF's uh, slogans at all in terms of pilots not, not doing their job if, unless they've failed. Um, so thank you all. Uh, to our audience, thanks again for joining us. Hopefully that's been valuable for you as well. Um, we have a special session next week uh, where we are going to be taking a slightly different angle and looking at um a tech perspective we're inviting um stephen bork from a company called echo who are a repeat uh, or a, an online pharmacy effectively going to be talking a bit about their journey what they've seen in terms of patient behaviors and demographics and the tech response really to covid so thanks again for joining us and tune in again next week and uh, have a good weekend thanks bye bye thank you cheerio Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please do subscribe for future episodes. If you'd like to find out more about our work with the NHS or how we can support your market access strategy, please email info at mtechaccess.co.uk.